Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And and the man said, well, the the woman whom you gave to... Be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good 
and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, keep your, your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 3 as we dig in to find the hope of grace, the hope of grace. I want to thank the elders for the opportunity to minister to you from the word this morning. Uh, I understand that this is a responsibility and I take that responsibility seriously and I'm honored for the opportunity. Now, I, I wanted to let you know that when Darren and Matt approached me a few weeks ago about preaching today and knowing what we have been studying and knowing what we will be studying, I wanted Genesis 3 to be more than just a nice reprieve for Matt this week. I wanted Genesis 3 to be a great connection point between killing sin and the gospel of Luke. You see, Genesis 3 tells us why we have to kill sin. And Luke is going to tell us the hope that we have for sin. Because in Genesis 3, we find out that there is a snake crusher that will come. And when he comes, that's the story of Luke, right? And so I hope that this will be a good connection point between our series on killing sin and the gospel of Luke. You see, Genesis 3 was actually written many, many years after the events described here. Genesis 3 describes events that happened at the very, very beginning, but it was written thousands of years after these things took place. And to help us to understand why we're doing what we're doing this morning, I'll let Moses speak for himself. You see, Moses describes in the Pentateuch a world that was cursed by sin, and that world was not a pleasant place to be. The Pentateuch describes this world in very vivid terms. In fact, in Genesis 6, when we're talking about Noah, we see that this world was a place of wickedness. And every intention of every thought was only evil continually. This is not a place where you would want to be. In Exodus 1, we find out that there is an evil nation, Egypt, who is ruthlessly, and that's what the word that Moses uses in, Gen in Exodus 1, Egypt was ruthlessly enslaving the Israelites and killing their babies. This is not a place where you'd want to be. But this is the world under sin. In fact, in Numbers 13, we get a picture of the hopelessness that comes from sin. Because in Numbers 13, Moses describes as, as the nation of Israel who has God on their side goes into the land to spy out the land. This land full of giants who Israel is, is hopeless against. Their people were huge and their cities were fortified. Why does, why does Moses paint this picture of this evil world and the hopelessness that goes with it. And I, what I want you to understand about Genesis 3 is that Moses is trying to help us to understand that evil breeds hopelessness. 
Evil breeds hopelessness. And in fact, Moses' contemporaries in the ancient Near East, they were known for their hopeless view of life because they believed that you were born, you live, you die, and then you're just reborn. And what's the point in that? If we're all just being born, live, die, and reborn, there's no point. Why would I try? There's no point at all. And so the people in the ancient Near East, Moses' contemporaries, were known for their hopeless view of life. But what Moses is doing in Genesis 3, he's giving us a countercultural punch to that hopelessness. This account is going to give us purpose and hope to those languishing under the effects of sin on creation. This account, if you know that creation, that your suffering has a purpose, if you know that this messed up creation, this sin-cursed creation is moving toward a definitive, restorative end, it gives you purpose and it gives you hope. And that's what I want you to see from Genesis 3 this morning, that God's gracious response to our sin brings hope to humanity that evil and death will be defeated. One more time, God's gracious response to our sin brings hope to humanity that evil and death will be defeated. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bless his word as we study it this morning. Holy Spirit, we do ask that even in this sad, sad story of how sin entered the world, that you would open our eyes to the hope of your grace. Quench our thirst with your word this morning and change us because of it. We ask this in the name of the snake crusher Jesus. Amen. So let's find out how God, in his wisdom, is going to, even, even in this sad story, give us hope in this sin. So number one, we see God's gracious provision of choice. God's gracious provision of choice. So let's, look exactly, let's look at exactly how Satan uh, destroyed their confidence in God. First of all, we see letter A, God's word anchors humanity's confidence in him. God's word anchors humanity's confidence in him. Now, when we read a story like this one, you've probably read this chapter hundreds of times if you've been a Christian for very long. And when we read a chapter like this, it's easy for us to just skip to the part that we know. We, we don't want to bury the lead of this, though. The lead in this chapter is that God had given them all creation to enjoy. God is a good God. He had given them literally every tree in the garden except the one that would kill them. What a terrible God. No, God gave them all things to enjoy. And sometimes we forget the goodness of God in Genesis 3. <clears throat> but Satan plants doubt in their minds by placing doubt on God's word. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And Eve starts to doubt the word of God. We know that Eve thought, considered God's word to be open to her interpretation in verse 3 because she adds to God's word, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So we see that God's word is what anchors humanity's confidence in him. And letter B, we see God's goodness anchors humanity's reliance on him. We know this instinctively, don't we? Even my daughter, Layla, if you know her, she's five years old, and anytime she's required to do something, she's going to need a reason why she has to do that thing, which is exhausting. But a couple of years ago, 
Leah and I started to ask her a question. When she would question the requirement that we had put on her, we would respond with our own question. And that question was, does mommy and daddy love you? Do mommy and daddy require you to do things that will hurt you or things that will help you? Why do we ask her that question? We ask that question because it is always easier to ground the requirements of a relationship in the goodness and love of a relationship. And that is what, when we, we, we've already heard this from Matt, that all sin has a root of unbelief, right? When we start to doubt the goodness of God, then that is the beginning of our faith being destroyed. And so if the goodness of God and the word of God are like twin anchors that keep us moored to him, then sin is what comes and severs our connection to God. Let her see sin severs humanity's connection with God. Sin severs humanity's connection with God. I want you to see what happens to Eve in this verse. It, it says in verse 6, So when the women saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was be, to be desired to make one wise. Do you see the three things that happened to Eve here? It is her physical, her emotional, and her spiritual senses that draw her into sin. And I bring that up because we see in Matthew 4, the same certain serpent coming to Jesus in the desert. And how does he tempt Jesus? Through his physical, through his emotional and through his spiritual senses. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve got exactly what they wanted. But what they didn't understand is that their folly outpaced their judgment. Because look in verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. This is what they wanted. And then they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Do you see what happens? They got their physical, emotional, their spiritual senses. That's what they wanted opened up, right? So suddenly their innocence is violated. They become guilty when their eyes are opened. They're, they experience shame for the very first time in their life. They saw that they were naked and then they immediately start to self-justify. Do you see that these same things are the same things that prevent us from having a relationship with God? If it weren't for our guilt, our shame, and our self-justification, every single one of us would have a great relationship with God. And it's exactly this that prevents them from having a relationship with God. But as we read these first seven verses, we have a, we have a question for God, don't we? And whether this question is in the forefront of your mind or is boiled in the back of your mind for years and years, we have a question for God. Why did God even give them a choice? If God is omniscient, if he knew that they would plunge creation into sin with the choice that they would make, why did God even give them a choice? Well, there are lots of answers to that question. I hope that you have lots of answers to that question because this is a faith destroyer, this question. But one of the answers to that question is that forced love is not love at all. Think of it like this. He sees her across the room. The music swells as he takes in her beauty. He leans over to his friend and says, she's 
the one. He approaches her almost floating across the room. And as, as he approaches her, he introduces himself and says, I love you. And then draws his weapon. And as he holds the gun to her back, he says, do you love me? Uh, I, I guess. Sure. Yes. Will you marry me? Uh, yeah, I guess. Do you see how the absence of choice prevents true love? Yeah, God could have had robots without a choice, but he wouldn't have had love. The absence of choice prevents true love. And the fact is that when we encounter sin, just like Adam and Eve, when we encounter temptation, excuse me, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, it's only confidence in the word of God and in the goodness of God that is our hope to overcome sin. And we've talked about this for the past several weeks, so I won't harp on it. But the fact is, when, we, when our confidence in the word of God and in the goodness of God start to be destroyed, we start to give in to those temptations. But I want you to notice something else. It says in verse 6 that Eve took and ate, she tasted of that forbidden fruit. And then she gave to her husband and he tasted it as well. And where Adam and Eve plunged creation into sin with that taste of forbidden fruit, it says in Hebrews that when Jesus tasted death on our behalf, it redeemed creation from that same sin. So where Adam and Eve plunged creation into, into sin with one taste, Jesus redeems creation from that sin with his taste of death. But we don't just see God's gracious provision of choice. Number two, we see God's gracious declaration of a new order. God's gracious declaration of a new order. Letter A, we see God pursues his sinful people. God pursues his sinful people. You understand that there was an expectation of fellowship on both sides of this relationship. Now, I, I want to stress to you that, that no commentator, no theologian knows how long, how, how, long what, how much time elapsed between 2.25 and 3.1. We have no idea. There's some good guesses, but we have no idea how long passed. Whether it was a day or a decade, it doesn't matter. What we do know in verse 8 is there was an expectation that when God entered the garden, he would be fellowshipping with his people. And you see that the, the humans as well on their side, they knew that God was coming. They knew that God was coming to fellowship with them. And I want you to understand this is is. is integral to your understanding of this passage as well as to your life that God created you to fellowship with you. In other words, God created you because he wants to be with you. That's incredible. The goodness of God, he created you to be with you. But we see something in verse 10 that what does sin do to this expectation of fellowship? We see a pattern up here. Sin leads to fear, which leads to shame, which leads to isolation. We see it really, really clearly in verse 10. It says, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Why? Because of his sin. His sin made him afraid because I was naked. This is the shame and I hid myself. Isolation. Let me explain it this way. When, when I was uh, 16 years old, in fact, on my 16th birthday, I went down to the DMV and received my driver's license, right? And with the reception of that driver's license, my ability to do some really foolish things increased exponentially. 
And I remember thinking as, as I was doing said stupid things, that I remember thinking, man, if my uncle and aunt ever found out what I'm doing right now, they would kill me. Do you see the fear that comes from sin, right? Fear that results from sin. Now, I had a bedroom in the basement growing up in high school. And, and the problem with a basement bedroom, it sounds great, except when you come home from doing those stupid things, it is like a minefield to get to that bedroom, right? First, you got to enter the house into the hallway where my uncle and aunt's bedroom is. And, you know, there's a, there's a possibility that they pop their head out. Hey, how you doing? I don't want to talk to you right now. And then, and then you have to go from that hallway and past the kitchen and the living room where everyone hangs out. And I remember whispering prayers, depending on what I had just been doing. Please, God, let none of the other 10 people that live in this house be in any of those places so I could just get to that basement door. Do you see shame? Sin leads to fear, which leads to shame. And by the way, if I ever got to that bedroom door without being noticed, there was no coming back upstairs. I was down there for the long haul. I did not want to be around the people that would confront me with my sin isolation. You see this pattern in your own life that sin produces fear, which produces shame, which produces isolation. But we see in verse 9, God pursuing his people. The Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? This question, depending on your view of God, is going to be colored by that perception. So if you believe that God is a despot, that he is a tyrant, then you will hear this. And the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? If you believe that God is a simpleton and he's just one of our peers, you'll hear this. Uh, hey, guys, where are you? But neither of those things is what should color your perception of this your understanding of this question. This question is a cue to us that God is about to pursue his children. This question is, should bring you comfort and should bring you hope. Because God is pursuing his people in this question. Please don't buy into this false notion that God is some sort of fixed point and when we sin, we get further and further away from him and then when we come back, this is what I was taught growing up, that God is a fixed point and when we sin, we turn our back on God and if we, take, if we sin, we take a step away from God and if we do one of the really big ones, then we take a big leap away from God. But what happens if and when I turn back towards God... Now there's this great chasm that's filled with penance and filled with guilt and all these things that I have to do to get back to God that is absolutely and unequivocally false. Because when we sin, yes, we turn our back on God, but the further and further we get away from God, when we turn around, he's right there. He is pursuing his people in this question, where are you? And we see this in verses 12 and 13 that God patiently elicits confessions from them while they try to self-justify. It's God's patient pursuit that gives us reason for hope. When we had gone away, he pursued us. That is good news. And letter B, God graciously curses his creation. God graciously curses his creation. Now, if that sentence sounds weird to me, to you, Hold on, I'll explain, okay? But first of all, I want you to see the power of God in verse 14 when he crushes the serpent. 
Because when he crushes the serpent, he doesn't just say, I will defeat you, my enemy. He says, I'm going to humiliate you. I'm going to put you on your belly. And as you eat dirt for the rest of your life, I want you to remember that you have no power over me. God's power, we see God's power as he humiliates his enemy. And then we see the first embers of the gospel in verse 15, where we learn that that humanity would be in this perpetual struggle with evil, this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's going to be a perpetual struggle between good and evil, which we experience every day. But the good news is there's a snake crusher coming. And he is going to not just defeat his enemy, he is going to humiliate his enemy. This is our hope. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of the curses that come in Genesis chapter 3. That despite the perpetual struggle with evil, it will ultimately be defeated by our hero, our snake crusher, Jesus But I want you to see the gracious curses that he gives to humanity in verses 16 to 19. He comes to the woman and he says, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing. He says, childbearing is going to be hard. Moms, can I get an amen? He says to Eve, he says, your desires are going to be contrary to your husband. You're going to want his position in the marriage. Marriage is going to be hard. And then he comes to Adam and he says, I have cursed the ground where you are supposed to get your food. And by the sweat of your brow, you're going to get your food now. It's no longer going to be pleasurable and happy for you to work. But I want to show you why this is so gracious. Turn back maybe one page in your Bible to 128. In 128, it says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Do you see how when God comes and multiplies Eve's pain and childbearing, yes, sin had frustrated that purpose in her life. But when God curses her and says that childbearing will be hard, he not only frustrates because of sin, but he establishes and preserves that purpose in her life. Uh, Turn back to uh, chapter 2, verse 24. It says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They were supposed to be living in this harmonious relationship called marriage. And God comes to them and says, marriage is going to be hard. But do you see how sin frustrates that purpose for their life? But God in his curse establishes and preserves that purpose for them. Do you see in in 129, go back to 129, it says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And when he comes to Adam and he says, It's going to be hard to work the ground now. He says, Sin has frustrated that purpose for your life, but I have established and preserved that purpose for your life. God is gracious to curse them like this. Yes, he promises that these things would be hard, but he also promises that their purposes for their life would be fulfilled and would be established and preserved. What he's trying to help us, what Moses is trying to help us to understand in these curses is that God graciously preserves hope even in these curses. 
And how many of us feel like we are, we are unable to accomplish the purposes that God has given us in our life? We feel a little bit like Adam and Eve, like everything has just been frustrated and I can't do the things that God wants me to do. Remember that God has, has frustrated because of sin. Sin has frustrated our purposes in our life and sin has made an isolation from God. But the good news is that God is pursuing you. I told you that your perception of God was going to, to color that question, where are you? This is what I want you to color. This is what I want to color that question for you. God is omnipotent, meaning God is all-powerful. And so when God comes into the garden and asks, where are you? Or when God comes into your life after you've sinned and he says, where are you? He's not wondering if he'll be able to find you. He is omnipotent. What that means is what he's looking for, he's going to find. And that's good news for us. That when we turn our back and when we push ourselves away from God, God is not far, far away from us when we do that. God is pursuing us right on our backs, ready for us to turn to him, turn from our sin and turn to him. And when life is just going terribly because you're running from God like Saul in Damascus, understand that sometimes God pursues his children by compulsion. And like David, when you're going down a path in your life where, where things, this could have the potential to ruin your life, and God steps in, he intervenes and pushes you another direction, understand that God pursues his children sometimes by correction. And if you're like the prodigal son and you're eating out of the pigsty and you wake up and you come back to God and God welcomes you with open arms and kills the fatted calf for you, understand that sometimes God pursues his children with comfort. And if we can look at that pursuit with those lenses, those things, compulsion, correction, and comfort, they, they cease to be either the best thing in our life for comfort or compulsion or correction. Those things cease to be the worst thing in our life. And they, we start to be, begin to understand that God is pursuing his children. And do you see the genius of Genesis 3.15? That God simultaneously preserves his justice but also displays his grace by devising a plan where the snake crusher would come. And it's only in Christ that we have the hope of reconciliation to our Father. Remember, sin has separated us from God. But through Christ, through this snake crusher who would come, we have hope of reconciliation to our Holy Father. And it's only through Christ that we can stand before our holy judge justified because our sin has been paid for by that snake crusher. And very quickly, we'll do the last few verses here. It's number three, God's gracious protection of his creation. God's gracious protection of his creation. It's very interesting uh, how how. Moses uh, inserts this weird factoid into verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because he was the mother of all living. It doesn't seem, I don't know if it hit you when Chris was reading through, but it, it, it doesn't seem to go into the flow of the, the story. Why did, why did Moses include this? But I want you to notice what the name means. She was the mother of all living. It would have made a lot more sense if she would have been named the mother of all dead. 
because she had just introduced death into creation. But what Moses is trying to help us to understand, letter A, that God ensures that life will outlast death. By inserting this weird fact into the the narrative of Genesis 3, Moses and the Holy Spirit is helping us to understand that humanity will survive the curse of sin because Eve's name means the mother of all living. Letter B, we see in verse 21 that God requires death for sin. God requires death for sin. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, just like Matt told us a few weeks ago, you don't catch food and skin it. You kill food, animals, and skin it. This was the first death recorded in all of history right here. God killed an animal because he said, verse 217, he said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. You say, why did God kill an animal? This was a temporary satisfaction of God's justice. God is executing a temporary justice that covers their shame that comes from sin. God requires death for sin. But let her see, and finally, God provides relief even in death in verses 22 to 24. I want you to notice how the power of life and death are in God's hand. Only God has the power to give life, as we saw in Genesis 1, and take life, as we see in Genesis 3. Only God has that power. But I want you to see, a cynical reader might look at Genesis 3 and say, well, see, Satan was actually right. God didn't kill them when they ate the fruit. But what I want you to see here is that God preserves his creation. God executes this temporary justice and then he preserves creation through physical death. No, Adam and Eve didn't die that day. They died spiritually that day, but they didn't die physically that day. That happened many years later. But even in that physical death, God is gracious because he's doing two things there. He preserves his creation. If you have a determined child, you understand this concept. That the first time a child commits a sin, it's actually very rudimentary, right? And even if they try to cover it up, they're really bad at it. But the next time they try to cover up, it's a little bit better. And that evil progresses in our hearts the older we get. And so what God is saying here is that if, if I were to let you live forever, that evil would only increase in your heart. And God is preserving his creation by limiting the physical life of humanity. But not only that, he prevents perpetual torture under the curse I already, I already referenced that in the Pentateuch, we find that the world is a terrible place to live under sin. We experience this every single day. How many of you would love to live in this world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? No, God is actually giving us a grace when he brings physical death because he is preventing perpetual torture under the curse for those who have believed In God's name. But therein lies the key, right? Relief only comes when we place our faith into the sacrifice that God prescribes for our sin. You see, the rules haven't changed. 
God said in Genesis 2.17 that if they sinned, they would die. And the consequences for that sin remain the same for you today. If you sin, you will die. And I've got some bad news for you. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned. So, it's not that I don't like you. It's not that I don't think that you're a pleasant person. But the punishment for all of us in this room is death. It has to be. If it weren't, God would cease to be just and he would cease to be God. So in order for God to be just and fair, your punishment must be death. But then how do we try to pay for our sins? Well, if I go to church or if I'm kind to my neighbor, we are hoping that God will accept accept our self-justification for our sins. Remember Adam and Eve, they tried to cover their sin their own way by making loincloths made of leaves. Their self-justification couldn't cover their sin any more than our self-justification does. Their self-justification couldn't cover them, their sins because the punishment for sin was not fig leaves. The punishment for their sin was death. This, and in, in Genesis 3, God stepped in. And that is the hope that we have. That when God stepped in, just like he covered Adam and Eve's shame temporarily in the garden with the death of an animal, he sent his son to die for our sin on the cross to be our propitiation. Not just a temporary covering, but God's wrath was poured out completely on his son so that we could be forgiven. This was the death that once for all covered our guilt and our shame and our isolation that comes from sin. But then what do we do? We try to pay for our sin with fig leaves. We try to pay for our sin another way. And when we do, we violate the justice of God. God is not a supermarket. He does not take multiple forms of payment for sin This is why we use the phrases like trust in Christ's sacrifice, put your faith into Christ's sacrifice, because until we give up our efforts at self-justification, our fig leaf efforts, until we turn from our sin, not just our sin, but our self-justification, and we place our faith into the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, that is when we can be forgiven. That is when we can have hope, hope of forgiveness. Hope of reconciliation to our Father. Hope of life, not just life under the curse that's so arduous, but life after death. Life free from all of the effects of sin on this creation. And we have hope that all of the evil in this world, all of the things that frustrate us so much about this world, all of that will be taken care of because one day the snake crusher will come and he will right all wrongs. He will defeat evil. He will defeat death. This is why we have hope. This is the hope of grace in Genesis 3, that God's gracious response to our sin brings hope to humanity, that evil and death will be defeated. Let's pray and thank the Lord for Genesis 3. God, we are unworthy of your pursuit. We're unworthy of your grace. 
God, press on us the wonder of our salvation. Press on us our unworthiness. And Lord, help us to stand in awe of the fact that you sent the snake crusher who would defeat sin, who would defeat death, who would defeat all of his enemies and not just defeat them, but humiliate them. Lord, fill us with hope as we trudge through the muck of sin every single day. Draw our eyes to the snake crusher who is coming to defeat that evil. Lord, help us not to be a hopeless people. May this church be known for the hope that they have in you. When the evil goes, when the evil gets down into our bones, help us to clean that out with the hope of Christ. Lord, we ask this because of the death that he made for us on the cross in his name. Amen.